everyone. This is the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. And today I am filling in for our usual host, Adam Hoffberg. Today's uh, program, we're going off in a, a, a new direction or we're, we're exploring a new topic here that's trauma-informed architecture or trauma-informed building. And joining uh, me today is Jennifer Wilson and Laura Rosbert. Jennifer is a PhD candidate at the University of Denver. And uh, Laura Rosbert is an architect at Shopworks Architecture. So why don't we have them introduce themselves? And let's start with you, Jennifer. Great. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's nice to have an excuse to go down to the basement and be by myself for a few minutes. So um, no, but really, it really is nice to be able to talk about this topic right now. I'm in a PhD program in social work at the University of Denver. At the university, I also work with the Center for Housing and Homelessness Research. We do uh, research and evaluation, training and technical assistance on housing and homelessness related um, projects. I'm trained as a social worker and, and that's definitely my perspective in this work, the lens that I bring in. Very good. Yeah, and I, I guess I should say for our audience that we are recording this during the COVID-19 shelter at home time. We are doing this remotely. I imagine that's why Jennifer is uh, sheltered in her basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to be part of this? Sure. Yeah. So I am um, at Shopworks Architects. I'm actually not an architect, uh, which is always very confusing to people. Um, and it's a fair assumption since I work at an architecture firm. So I've been at Shopworks Architecture for about a year. Uh, Shopworks focuses on designing spaces for nonprofit on a lot of supportive housing and affordable housing um, for folks who've experienced homelessness and also kind of workforce housing um, for folks you know, like our baristas and folks who are working minimum wage jobs. And before I was at Shopworks, I was actually the interim executive director at the Dolores Project, which is a homeless <laughs> shelter in Denver. And while I was in leadership, we built 130 units of affordable housing alongside a brand new homeless shelter. We did that in partnership with Rocky Mountain Communities. Uh, so I come from the nonprofit world um, of working alongside folks experiencing homelessness and transitioned over to Shopworks to really think about how we're most mindful of the end user when we're designing buildings. Because that's one of the things that designing for the end user mm-hmm. um, and in our field of suicide prevention, one of the things that we often talk about is lived experience, mm-hmm. which I'm, I, I think is very similar to, yes. to that, yeah. So. so I guess a good place for us to start would be to understand this idea of trauma-informed. What what you, who can tell, tell me a little bit about or tell our audience about that? Sure. I think one of the easiest places to start is kind of how uh, Jennifer, Jennifer and I both got into this work. When I was uh, helping design Arroyo Village uh, for the Dolores Project in Rocky Mountain Communities, one of the things we were doing was at the homeless shelter, I was overseeing the implementation of what's called trauma-informed care. And that acknowledges that trauma changes our brains in a way that shifts how folks experience other people, programs that they're a part of. That means often that folks who've had major trauma are constantly in fight or flight. So you need to work on really building relationships and they're smart for not immediately trusting authority figures, for example, right? That's how they've survived and thrived. And so, it's not up to them to change. It's up to those who have power in situations, service providers, to shift how they're offering programs to help folks heal and build those beautiful relationships that we all desire. 
we had implemented trauma-informed care as the shelter, and that's always an ongoing process, right? It always involves training and learning new things and having different conversations with new guests, for example, of the shelter. And at the same time, we were designing this building. We were trying to find research to say, all right, well, if we want to implement, we've implemented trauma-informed care, how do we make sure this building helps support all of that? And we really came up short. Um, there wasn't a lot of research. It was one of the first things I did when I came onto ShopWorks was we joined together as a team, Jennifer um, and the Center for Housing and Homelessness Research expressed their interest. And we did a research study on trauma-informed design, applying those principles to the built design. Um, and so that's kind of how all of this came to be. One of the things you said in there was, you know, has you brought staff on to, a, to just work at the shelter. You trained them in this idea of, of trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm curious, what does that, how, what are the things that you would train somebody? Yeah, so SAMHSA has six principles of trauma-informed care that I'm not gonna mm -hmm. be able to note off the top of my head at this moment, but it's really about making sure you're creating spaces for folks to be authentically themselves. You're empowering guests. Um, you're not creating rules for rules sake. You're only sticking to rules that really are about the health and wholeness of all parties involved. And you're giving folks a chance to kind of relief. At the Dolores Project, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of meditation, there's um, yoga, there's opportunities for folks to ground, but also to just have joy and know one another. So it's really working on being mindful of all the ways that we can be human together. You're not looking at somebody and asking them why they're doing something. You're asking what happened to you that this is your reaction in this situation. It really sounds like it's centered around the the person themselves rather than these are the rules that we need to maintain and you ought to be following them mm -hmm. well and the one point i mean there's still rules um but you're making sure you don't have rules for rules sake to like have power over somebody um, that the rules are clear and explained um, and are really, there's a lot of rules in our society that aren't based on people thriving. Um, and so making sure in the shelter you're not doing that. And I know Jennifer has experience as well working in a homeless shelter. I think that trauma-informed care, trauma-informed services are sort of best when everybody understands the many different traumas that a person potentially has experienced and how that's playing out in all the different aspects of each of our lives. And, and that's, that's the participant of a program, perhaps in this case, the individual who's in um, living in a housing unit who has experienced homelessness. That's also the staff. Um, that's participants understanding one another. So when my neighbor is reacting to my music in a certain way, I have a more nuanced understanding of perhaps where that reaction is coming from. And so I think trauma-informed care is best when sort of everyone's on the same page. And it's a lens that, I mean, I guess idealistically that the entire world and all sectors and industries and, and everyone would eventually familiarize themselves with and take on. Um, because I think that if we were to walk through life sort of seeing everybody as a whole person who interacts with many systems, who has many identities, who has experienced many things, beautiful and perhaps challenging, then I think we could all be more understanding, compassionate, and also just um, productive, right? Like there is a more productive way for us to communicate with one another, to express grievances when we live in the same building, to just move about life together. I think trauma-informed care is, is for all of us to sort mm -hmm. of understand about one another in services, but also just in life. So trauma-informed care then gives us a way to interact with one another, a way to understand where we're all coming from and to 
understand and respect that. So that's the interaction on a person-to-person -person level. How does that then translate to um, the building, this built space? I, I will say that Laura is pretty humble when she approaches this topic and this work, but I think that she was very much sort of has been the catalyst, the visionary, and the one driving this work um, to be done in the most participant, human-centered way. I think oftentimes when we do research, there are lots of ways that we can um, define expertise and knowledge and information. With this work, Laura has really centered expertise and experience um, with the person who has potentially um, is, is living in supportive housing, who has experienced the trauma of homelessness, or, and or many other traumas. The focus of this work has always been centered in the expertise of that lived experience. I really credit Laura with having, making sure that emphasis has always been in place from day one. And I think that's exactly where it should be. We set out to do focus groups and interviews, collect observational data as well at three different supportive housing sites across um, Denver and Fort Collins. And at each site, we conducted focus groups with the folks who uh, were living in the units in that building, as well as the staff, with an emphasis on those who were living there, the residents. We did 11 focus groups in total, and we also collected 59 paper surveys. It was really a mixed methods approach, so lots of quantitative data, multiple choice, direct answers, but also tons of qualitative data. Tell us about your experience. Tell us your story. And I think we've really found that the narrative, the, the human stories are, are what is um, really explaining or driving this phenomenon of how the built environment can be conducive to healing and to dignity, to hope, to um, joy. So we conducted these 11 focus groups, paper surveys, and there were some interesting findings. Should I just jump into some of that? Yes, jump, jump right in. We spoke with people and we had a lot of research questions in mind. How do you interact with your environment? What aspects of the built environment, this building, this space, feel safe, feel positive, help you to interact positively with others? What spaces maybe are the opposite, don't feel safe, feel isolated? And then from there, we, um, we did different exercises to get it more information and, and kind of dug a bit more into each of rabbit holes and responses that people offered. So distilling all of um, those responses down to something that we could share with others doing this work or interested in this work, we, um, we arrived at what we call the three C's for, of designing for health and healing. The three C's, these elements are sort of at the heart of all decision-making that in the design process, there are a series of infinite number of decisions that need to be made. And at each point, um, you can really lean towards the, the trauma-informed choice or potentially not. And there's a spectrum, but they're just points to kind of make considerations. So the three C's are choice, comfort, and community. All of those things are what we kept hearing from folks who participated in these focus groups. Choice was, um, for us, about the level of engagement that a person has with their space. I can be in my apartment unit. I can be in the wide open community space playing bingo or um, hanging out with people on the patio, or I can be um, in one of the two chairs sitting in front of the fish tank. A more quiet environment, but still you know, with some social opportunity. I have agency and ownership over my space. I am able to choose maybe what unit or how, uh, what color the walls are painted or how I organize my furniture, what furniture is in there. Um, I can personalize it. And so these were all elements of choice that um, could assist in, in sort of that healing process. Comfort was about quality, variety. One of the sites folks talked a lot about um, how wonderful the couches were and how they were, they were sleeping in the living room more often than their bedroom. Um, it was 
maybe a more wide open space or maybe uh, sleeping on a couch was something they were more familiar with from couch surfing or or maybe they just like to um, to be by the TV and have a bit of noise and a bit of light. And so whatever it was, a lot of folks were sleeping on their couches and they were really appreciative of how comfortable the couches were. They loved their couches. So that choice, that quality, that comfort um, in that piece. Folks also spoke about some of the art elements in the building that felt special, made them feel special and were delightful and sparked joy. And so those, those might be other elements of comfort. And then finally, community. We spoke a lot about, you know, hypothesizing what people might say about um, social interaction in the space. And I think we, in speaking with people in each of the buildings, we were able to really sort of identify what community means that there were these different elements of community. There was community in the building with staff, um, with folks who live on your floor, with folks who you share interests with, the people who you garden with on the patio or on the roof, um, the folks who you smoke with on the first floor, whoever it may be. So there were these groups, these like subsets of community. And then externally, it was the community who comes and visits you from outside the building. It was the community who resides around the building or in that neighborhood. And then it was the greater community of you know, Denver or Fort Collins, how easily someone could access the rest of the city. We were able to think in a, in a more nuanced way about what community means and how each decision impacts each of those community sort of touch points or opportunities. So those are the three C's of designing for health and healing, all um, places where decisions can be um, really intentionally made. Okay, Laura, do you want to piggyback yeah. on that? Well, and I think, um, you know, for us, trauma-informed design is really being mindful of these things at the beginning of the design process. It doesn't have to cost more money to design with trauma and resiliency in mind. It's really about making sure you're prioritizing these choices. And it can be as simple as for choice, right? Like offering blackout blinds for folks, offering dimmer switches on lights, right? As Jennifer mentioned, offering a variety of uh, colors for furniture. So, you know, I think these are things that allow people to have ownership and empowerment um, of their space. And I think one of the things that I know from pulling off a huge affordable housing design um, and building is that construction and design is expensive, right? Getting these buildings off the ground. And so I think we sometimes live in this thought of scarcity, one of the things we reference in conversations with folks is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so often we're just like, we're providing shelter. They're lucky they get it and we can feel good that we've provided it. We really wanna push that conversation over, that's great, providing shelter is great and making the numbers work on all, any affordable housing deal is hard. And I do not want to minimize that as somebody who has stared at a million spreadsheets. And that does not stop us from thinking about how our, what we are doing reaches those higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We want the values around a housing team when they're thinking about what this looks like or designing nonprofit space or counseling offices or schools or anything houses for anybody to buy like let's design around dignity hope and self-esteem let's think about empowerment and personal control let's think about safety security and privacy that is huge for anybody who's experienced homelessness for anybody who's experienced trauma as it relates to those who live with depression and anxiety for example and security is not just about real security, like the walls are high enough, people can't get over them. It's, does it feel safe? It's about perceived <clears throat> safety. Because what feels safe to me is somebody who always had a house growing up and never had to worry if there was going to be food on the table and was not abused by my parents is really, really different than the guests of the Dolores Project, right? It's about creating peace of mind and community and connection and sparking joy and beauty and meaning. And we can do all of that while sticking to a budget. And isn't that where, what we all want? And I think, you know, we tried to do this at the Dolores Project and I made mistakes in that. But the one mistake we didn't make mm -hmm. was 
engaging the guests and they got to declare and make those design decisions. And what they wanted was different than what I assumed they wanted as close to them as I was, right? So for example, when we designed the dorms, we put the staff office across the hall from the guests. And they're like, absolutely not, Laura. We want that staff office in the dorm. And I'm like, no, I want to give you your privacy. That's Big Brother is watching you. And they're like, no, Laura, having visual access to staff at all time is safety for me. And it's like, of course it is. Of course it is, right? And so for me, the best of my intentions don't matter. It's about how we're making sure that the folks who are going to be existing within the space are get to be leaders and decision makers because how trauma lives out in different communities is different, right? And that's the thing about trauma-informed design is, you know, the Dolores Project shelters for women um, and transgender individuals, both men and women. And then, you know, ShopWorks helped design Brandon Courtyards that has family units and supportive housing and with Volunteers of America who serves a high population, you know, who serves veterans in many of their programs. And so the design decisions looked different in that housing, for example. Um, we just finished Second Chance Center Path, sorry, Providence at the Heights was Second Chance Center. That's for folks leaving incarceration. The trauma-informed design pieces of that look really different, right? And mm -hmm. so, but if we keep these values and we keep these questions top of mind and are having conversations with the potential residents, we're gonna get somewhere positive. One of the ideas that you brought up there that I thought was really fascinating and somewhat in the minutia of it was a dimmer switch. And, and it, I tie that back to rules, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, with a regular light switch, it's either on or off. You will have the light on or you will have it off. But by giving somebody a dimmer switch, now you've given them that agency, that ability to say, ah, I kind of like it um, a little of this. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be that either or situation. And right. gives them that ability, even if it's small, some ability of control over their environment. Absolutely. And yeah. one of the things I always tease that I'm not an architect, and so I can tease my beloved architects at Shopworks about, is architects design for light. You know, south-facing windows that are glorious and all of this, and we want light everywhere. But you know what folks who've experienced homelessness for a decade haven't experienced in a decade? dark. It's kind of flipping the switch on there are things that are taught in architecture school that are just assumptions. And yeah, for when you're designing that multi-million dollar home, of course, do all the windows and don't worry about all the blinds. And when you're designing for folks who've had to live in communal situations and have never had darkness, give them the dignity of getting darkness with blackout blinds. And that's so cheap, right? I mean, Jennifer noted the artwork that creates comfort, but gives people meaning and tells them that they matter. I'm like, you know, I think we spent $5,000 on that artwork. Oh my gosh, if I can give somebody dignity and hope for $5,000, like that's, sign me up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like these huge wins, but you have to be, you have to be thoughtful about it and mindful and in conversation with the folks um, who are going to live there and listen truly deeply to their experiences and believe them. And then we all get to win. You know what I mean? When I got to walk the Dolores Project guests through the shelter for the first time, we were all in tears. I mean, that will go down as one of the top five moments in my life forever. Because they just walked around and they kept pointing things out and they're like, Laura, we asked you for this. And I'm like, I know. And to show them that their voice matters in a world that is just trying to put them to the side. I mean, what greater gift could I ever have to get to be a part of that for somebody? 
And don't we all want to do that? Yeah, I, if I can just add something there, um, I think that the sort of counterpoint that kept coming up for us uh, when we think about choice and personalization and agency and ownership, the counter narrative or the counterpoint was this idea of institutionalization or infantilization, treating people like children or like you know better or like they're not capable of making the good healthy decision for themselves be it like dimmed lights or you know whatever it may be and and i think that when we think about uh institutionalized when we think about um public housing it's you know bars on the windows and it's um it's balconies or staircases that are enclosed because people won't be safe people won't be safe with one another around one another or with themselves cage them in make that choice um, make every single unit exactly the same because we need to be equal and fair. So something that came up in the interviews that was so shocking to me, and I kept pushing it, was that all of the units, I think in all three buildings, that there were these subtle differences between them. For example, um, this, this unit has five windows, but my friend down the hall has six windows. People, the, our tour guide would know this. Or um, this unit has a very large living space, but a very small bedroom. However, my friend's unit has a very large bathroom and medium-sized living room and bedroom. I mean, like these, these, um, the variety. And I kept expecting and waiting for people to say, it's not fair. Every apartment should be exactly the same. We should all get the same number of windows. But that variety, like variety is the spice of life, the, the, the chance to, um, to have a space that reflects your interests and desires, they would say, you know, this is actually perfect for me because I, um, I like to entertain. So a larger living room really works for me, but the larger bedroom really works for them because X, Y, Z, that there was, there was never a moment when it was competitive or um, it was always valued that there were different spaces for different people. And I think um, an, another element to that point thinking about institutionalization versus variety and choice, something as simple as each floor being painted a different color, that came up a lot. And not only were the colors like beautiful and warm, I think the unique trauma-informed element to that is that sometimes in a new space or a large space, people can get very disoriented. And I think that that can be part of their trauma response. It anchors them. They get off the elevator and they know exactly where they are. I live on the green floor. And it's a simple sort of centering, grounding element that, and that also, I think there's, there's identity in that. We are the green floor and we are different from another floor and we deserve that unique and special identity apart from other people or floors in this building. I, I think a trauma-informed design approach is, it's counter to an institutionalized, infantilized design approach where we make all the decisions for you and we make everything as cookie cutter as humanly possible so that you have no uniqueness in your unit, in your space, because you have no uniqueness in your identity and who you are and how we see you as a person. Idea about, well, you know, we've given you shelter. What else do you want? And you really don't deserve anything more than that. And so the, the idea that you talk about this idea of comfort and joy and beauty has been human rights, has been something that we all deserve and we all want um, is um, really wonderful uh, to hear, hear you guys um, talk about. The one of the other ideas that you talk about is this idea of community, uh, many communities, kind of the, the, the differences in communities. Can you talk to a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm curious how those all interact. So one of the ways that folks heal from trauma, um, according to Samson, is creating kind of programs that are focused on collaboration and mutuality. Um, and building trust uh, between people, which means really building relationships. Big thing um, when folks 
are moving into supportive housing, for example, is developing relationships with staff and staff need to demonstrate time and time again that they're folks who can and should be trusted, right? That the staff are there to support them and help them thrive, connect them to resources, be there to just listen when they're having a hard day, right? And so one thing that we found in trauma-informed design as it relates to communities as well, there's so many communities happening in any living environment, in any apartment building, right? And supportive housing kind of has this added level of a bigger staff to provide case management and support. There's also residents engaging with each other and building those relationships. And then there's also the neighboring community and the neighboring folks in people's lives. You know, one of the root causes of homelessness is folks who have an unsafe family situation for whatever reason. When folks are experiencing homelessness or have moved into supportive housing, a part of them healing is sometimes not talking to their family ever again and setting that hard boundary. And sometimes it is rekindling those relationships and figuring out how to have them in a safe way. In designing, it's important to be mindful of all of those. So a couple things that we've learned from doing this, we didn't, the project, um, the supportive housing that I helped with, we didn't hit it all on this one because we didn't know yet. <laughs> so as you think about staff and residents, one of the things we've learned is that residents build better relationships with each other if the resident amenity spaces are within visual sight, at least, of staff. Because originally, residents are going to interact with staff because that's who they talk to to lease up and get the apartment, right? And if they can build relationships with each other and kind of know that person's safe, and if they become unsafe, they know staff is right there to help support them in the situation, then they'll develop deep relationships and have people over for dinner and things of that nature. Um, but if staff is really far away, they might not build those relationships in the same way. Um, at Dolores, at Arroyo Village, this was one of our biggest mistakes. We had an entryway with four chairs with a staff desk and then a resident and amenity space on the second floor, far from the staff offices. And you know, that second floor amenity space, I have only seen a person in there once in the last year of working there for a while and then visiting it on a weekly, bi-weekly basis, right? So that was a huge mess up. The other thing to think about in relationships and community is creating a space where it's safe for folks to re-engage with folks that they haven't been in contact with for a while. Is there kind of an outdoor quiet space with benches, for example, where somebody can interact with a family member without having to invite them into their room, their apartment that's really, really intimate? Dolores, there's these kind of four chairs in this entry area, and there's always residents hanging out there talking to staff. That is a place where somebody could engage with a family member, but it's not private enough, right, for a hard conversation. In our future buildings that we've designed, that's something we've kept top of mind, for example. How do we encourage relationship in a way that feels safe for the residents and the staff? Um, I think something else worth noting is Arroyo Village, the project that Laura was uh, took lead on in developing, it's a beautiful building. It's, it's a really dynamic, historically anchored, interesting, artistic building. And I think that I, I, I would hope, I believe that it sparks joy in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. it, um, and so, so I think that um, that's another way that, you know, you can think about uh, the built environment contributing to or um, just the influence it has on a community to be uh, mindful of cultural, the cultural context, the historical context, uh, the racial and ethnic context, and to build accordingly um, so that whatever you're adding, that it is additive. The neighbors, they have to look at this thing. And I think that um, many of these spaces are really pleasing to look at, not only to live in, but but to live around. And maybe help with that idea of not in my backyard. Right. right. Now, this is uh, a question that um, is more personal for me. Are there garden spaces that you mm -hmm. guys build for? Tell me yes. about that. Gardens are a huge place of healing. Um, so we try to add community gardens at everything we build. 
because as you think about trauma and non-trauma, I mean, right? I mean, right now living COVID life, the four people I love dearly in this world and I'm sharing space, you know, I've started planting seeds. I've never done that before, right? I'm like, I'm like, I need to touch dirt, right? I need to connect to the earth. And so one of the things when somebody's kind of having a moment, um, whether that relates to trauma or just stress of daily life, you know, one of the ways folks kind of heal or kind of get themselves out of the spiral in their head is by connecting to their senses, right? To touch and to smell and to taste and, and experiencing all of that. In the design, um, Rochelle McCure at Group 14 Engineering studies biophilia, and she's a, another partner on this project. And how are we creating, you know, she always talks about like being around kind of a fire pit, building community in circles and engaging in each other in that way where the power is shared and equal. Gardening and plants and even fake plants and even pictures of plants help people, right? Um, and there's a lot of amazing research on that. And so outdoor space is huge. We recently um, were doing a building with Housing Solutions of the Southwest in Durango. Um, and I got to go to Durango and talk to folks um, who were enjoying a meal at the soup kitchen there about that, you know, and outdoor space was the reason that they were all living in Durango. They're even more so than Denver, you know, we're increasing the outdoor space as much as possible and, and figuring out how you create less of a boundary between indoors and outdoors. Kind of gardening and, um, you know, even just kind of like lamb's ear, plants that feel good when you touch them are things that we're always mindful of. We work with Flo, um, who are landscape architects, and they're thinking about the trauma-informed design aspects of landscaping plans of when you have kids and senior citizens, how you're creating outdoor space for each of them that yeah. allows for the like grandparents to sit and have quiet, but the kids a lot of the ways kids handle trauma is by just like playing and being a little crazy because they need to get it out, right? So how do you allow those spaces for everybody? One of the, you talked about uh, meeting with the, the folks who would be living in each of these places, getting a lot of feedback from them. I guess one of the questions that I have about that is, Say you're going to now build another place. Well, would you need to do that again? Or do you have this previous information now? Will you just apply that like a rubber stamp to every new place? How would that happen? You know, when, when we talk about this work, we often sort of provide the caveat that there are lots of other considerations that need to be made with each project. I had mentioned history and culture and sort of demographic information about a place or a space, about the people who are going to be living there, the lived experience of the individuals. We know that even when looking at the, the population or the group of folks who have experienced homelessness, that there is a wide, wide range. We have um, folks who have experienced chronic homelessness. They've been potentially sleeping on the streets for 50 years. We have vets who um, maybe there has been um, uh, trauma of combat, perhaps there's been a traumatic brain injury. We have folks who are fleeing violent home lives and they're survivors of domestic violence. We have families with young children. We have single adults. A range, we're, we're building for youth who um, potentially they have never had a secure home life um, and this is their first time living independently. So it, there's a wide range, even within this one population of folks who've experienced unstable housing. Understanding the nuances and, and the unique um, circumstances and needs of the folks with lived experience, we know that there are budgetary constraints and, and a funding agenda and different partners' agendas in the work and zoning and building codes in a place or perhaps the climate and the weather of a place. So. So there will always be um, lots of considerations that need to be made with each project, which is why um, I, it would be so easy to say trauma-informed design needs or requires these 15 elements. Do it in every project. I think that that would be so cut and dry, very direct, easy to follow, user guide. But, um, but the reality is that it's just a series of decisions. And like Laura said, 
you don't get it right or you don't get it all for every person on any project. And so you just, you do your best to make trauma-informed decisions and um, to think about it, to consider it, and to do, um, to, to put forth something that um, potentially meets a range of needs and that a person could, you know, opt in or choose at different levels. There's a lot to consider. And I think the thing, there's no cookie cutter approach to this, but the questions that you ask people can stay similar, right? But how that gets applied and what that looks like is really different, right? I mean, Arroyo Village is like this brightly colored building. You come down a hill and it's just glorious and it just makes people smile every day. Brandon Courtyards that was designed with vets in mind, it is a like permanent building. It is brick. It is solid. It is providing that home for folks who maybe haven't felt home since, you know, before they left for war, for example. And so Volunteers of America in their brilliance and knowledge, no, no, we need, we need permanence. We need this thing that will seem unchanging over time. But, you know, it is asking every group, like, what has been the most helpful thing to you when you've been experiencing homelessness? What has support looked like? And talk to me about your first five minutes in your new apartment. What does that look like? Allowing people a chance to dream and connect so that we can hear what, what brings joy in the midst of deep pain for them. And we can build that then, right? Is it artwork or is it bigger windows or is it really fun colors, right? Or is fun colors really overwhelming and they want calming gray? And so you can ask those questions and then you get really different answers and then you, you get to be creative based on all of that. And then the important point is you hear those things, you make some design decisions, you throw some images up on the wall and say, what do you like and what don't you like, right? It's constantly checking the assumptions that those who have the power to make these decisions are constantly checking in and letting the voices of those um, who are going to live in the spaces lead us. So I, I think if there were one thing that a group could do to ensure success in their project, it would be to have a group of consultants who are or will be the end user, consult from the very, very beginning through until the very, very end. Mm -hmm. And I think a person who has never had a series of experiences will do their very best to make good, helpful decisions, but why not just ask a, a group, the source? I think that seems like maybe the, the best advice that, that mm -hmm. someone could move forward with. I, okay, I wanna try a, a little uh, something that, that I didn't prepare either of you to for. <laughs> but one of the things that we like to talk about when we're talking with researchers about the work that they've done is, so say a therapist is meeting with um, a client and is there something that that therapist can take from what we've talked about today and apply it um, with the person sitting across from them or next to them? Or, you know, is there something from our conversation today that a therapist might be able to use um, in their in their practice and to see where we go with that. A couple of things come to mind for me, Laura. I don't know if you have anything sort of on the tip of your tongue. You go. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that, um, that those who do clinical work versus I consider myself a social worker service provider, very much um, sort of in the field, um, a shelter environment is, can be very diff different from like a strictly clinical environment, 50 minutes plus time to write my notes. Um, and so, so I think that all of this could be employed in those environments as well. And, and I think there should be consideration. I mean, I think that the idea is always to make those environments comforting 
um, inviting, safe, neutral, really neutral, maybe even checking in with someone um, and saying, is there anything about this environment that, that doesn't feel great? The, the, even the temperature, the lighting, the positioning. I think that um, in a clinical environment, positioning, like physical positioning of seats um, is really intentional for safety, depending especially who you're working with or um, I guess checking in about all of that. Um, and I also think that people's environments, we don't always have the resources or the luxury of changing things. And so just thinking about folks that I've worked with in the past, to say, oh, maybe you need to invest in some blackout blinds. I mean, that may not be reasonable, but just to think that that there may be potential for a person to change some aspects of the environment that they're in, and how could um, how could I connect someone with resources, or how could I um, how could I just check in about those things? Laura, any yeah. I mean, I think um, as you're, I think all of Jennifer's points and I think, you know, really thinking about when you're even designing your therapy space, right? Are you creating opportunities for calm, but are, are you also sparking joy? That's how we heal in those moments of laughing so hard we cry, right? I mean, we're all, I, I shouldn't project. I, this situation I am in right now is very stressful, right? working full-time. My husband's working full-time. We have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old at home. You know, I'm not gonna, I try to meditate. I fail every time. Like, I'm not gonna sit and meditate while kids are screaming around me, yelling at each other because somebody ate their cookie, right? But like, I can laugh hysterically at how ridiculous this is. And like, that brings me healing, you know? And so I think how how do we activate that joy as well um, in the environment we're creating? Um, you know, and I think also, you know, those elements of nature that we try to bring in to everything, that's huge. Um, and what does that look like? How are we grounding folks um, while also sparking joy? I guess the you know the elements that that those three elements that you that you've talked about the choice the comfort and the the community has mm -hmm. has part of the clinical works that we might be doing are just kind of the informing really how we are interacting with one another. Well, you guys have been wonderful guests. You fielded that last question like true champs. <laughs> Is there Anything that that you'd like to close out with? Um, how about you, Jennifer? Anything you'd like to to close out with? Um, I think one thing that didn't come up that maybe is worth just raising quickly would be um, how the planning for space can be done in conjunction with with the training of a team or like imagining sort of the culture of the the, the policies and the implementation. Um, the program. I, I think that's a challenge. And I think that's asking a lot. It's not very often that executive director, that the role that Laura was in, is also designing the building that she would be managing both. I don't know, maybe that is common, but uh, it doesn't seem the most common. I think thinking ahead about how um, these spaces can be best put to use would be to imagine the two coming together. Thinking ahead. Um, engaging ahead in a in a way, huh? Yeah, the design, the building, and the the staffing, mm -hmm. right? And how the staff can make the best use of the space, and also like live out, really promote the space in the policies. It it doesn't matter if a person has choice in the space if the policy has taken all of that choice away. Right. right. You can't yeah. use any of this or like you need to sign 100 pieces of paperwork and talk to 50 people. So so just making sure that they go together. Mm -hmm. Right. OK. And you, Laura? Yeah, I think for me is this is a conversation. Uh, I think my favorite part of this work that we're doing is we messed up. We're chatting with folks. This is what we've heard. We're throwing it out into the universe. This is not Laura and Jennifer and Rochelle and the team saying, this is it. These are the six values and these are the three C's of designing, right? It's, hey guys, we've done some research. These are some really great concepts. What have you got, right? 
how do we how do we build this conversation? How do we learn from each other? You know, uh, therapists have thought about offering a choice, for example, of what chair you want to sit in, where you're comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. How are we making sure that this is multidisciplinary? We're learning from each other and together we're going to refine this for our lifetimes. You can find me, Laura Rossbert, ShopWorks. Go to our beautiful website. You can see beautiful buildings that we've designed that are trauma-informed. Reach out to me and Jennifer. Share your thoughts. Share what you've learned. Share where you completely disagree with us. I want to hear it. I don't think I'm an expert. I'm just somebody who's had a certain number of conversations and want to have more. Yeah, and we should add that there's going to be a, a web page that goes along with this uh, podcast where Laura and Jennifer are going to have, you know, we'll have links to the website. We'll, they'll be ha- given us material to put on that. And they'll also, we'll make a way for, for you folks to ask questions. The other thing that will happen uh, with this is you know, Laura, you were just closing with saying, you know, this is a lifetime thing. So because we're all really young here, our hope would be that that we'll be able to bring you guys back um, down the road sometime so that we can hear about other projects that you've launched and you've worked on some things that you've implemented some actions and just hear back how that worked, what worked, what didn't work. Um, so we'd love to have you have you back at some point in the future. I'd love that. Great. Great. Okay. It's a deal then. We've got, got them signed up, folks, for a long-term contract. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both, Jennifer and Laura, for your time today. Um, and folks, that's going to be it for this episode of the Recommend Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. Lucky for everyone, Adam will be back for the next episode. And uh, But until then, we want to keep you guys up to date and we'd love to hear back from you. Uh, we'd love to have you recommend uh, the podcast to others. Give it a rating if that fits your your mood and your schedule. And until next time, thanks for you know being part of all of this. Boom. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you.